Hello and welcome to the City View podcast. Me, Andy Sylvester, the editor at City AM. On a Thursday that has been an assault, frankly, of bad news, an awful lot of red flying around uh, various economic projections and forecasts. Bank of England, Ofgem, all contributing to a mood that if you had any Happy New Year optimism in January, well, I'm afraid February's started with, with a a rather negative bang. Um, in a few minutes, I'll be talking to Alex Hersham from Zen Cargo about the global supply chain and how smaller firms are trying to compete with the big boys like Amazon to make sure their supply chains stay robust in these strange times. But first, Jack Barnett, our economics and markets correspondent, joins me. Jack, you're over at the Bank of England. We'll come to you in a minute. But whilst you were in a lock-in with your phone in a how do they do it? Do you put your phone in a just sort of a little plastic bag outside, or uh, they have a you know like a it's, it's like a secondary school locker, right? And then you kind of just throw it in there, and then um, got go visions of everybody trying to nick each other's phone to yeah. grab scoops <laughs> off each other. Um, but Jack, whilst Jack was in the Bank of England, Ofgem announced, um, as expected, that the energy price cap will go up in April. I think it's fair to say expectations were for somewhere between eighteen hundred and two thousand pounds a year. It very much hit the top end of that, um, uh, up above nineteen fifty um, for the year. And indeed, if you're on a prepayment tariff, it hit as high as two thousand seventeen per year. That, of course, for more vulnerable customers. Then we have Rishi Sunak in the Commons announcing. An incredibly complicated, to be frank, scheme of council tax rebates as well as energy bill discounts to help with the cost of living crisis. And then over to you, Jack, the Bank of England, interest rate rise. Yep, yeah, uh, 25 basis points takes rates to uh, 0.5% now. Um, very much what markets expected. So, you know, you haven't got replays of that November decision when um, oh, everyone thought the bank was going to raise rates, but they didn't. Um, I think in hindsight, many people on the the MPC will probably admit that November decision was was a was a mistake. Um, but yeah, I think that the, the devil was really in the detail um, on this. So we got a new set of forecasts from the Bank of England, um, all of which are pretty downbeat on every single measure. The top line um, is that UK GDP growth has been slashed from five percent to uh, three and three point seven five percent for the year. Um, and the the most worrying thing um, for households out there is that the bank is projecting uh, a negative two percent um, shock to to real income. Um, again, it feeds into that. That's mainly being driven by the the mm. the, um, the height to the the energy price cap, which, as you mentioned, has been um, it's been pretty high today. But yeah, not not a pretty picture for the economy, and not a pretty picture for for households either. No, indeed not. And already some mortgage providers passing it on. What do we think about the bank? Of- so, counterpoint, you know, you and I have, have both sat here and, and we've expected the bank to raise rates. There are some that have said, again, today, Rupert Harrison, who was George Osborne's senior economic advisor, who's chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, saying that, you know, a cycle of s- serious and quick rate hikes would essentially strangle growth mm. and that we don't need to do that. You know, a slight correction upwards is fine, but you don't need this rapid rate hike cycle because this is a supply chain driven burst of inflation. Essentially, just fewer things, um, higher demand as we come out of the pandemic, supply chain logjam, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not actually about a hot labor market. Mm. Um, did Andrew Bailey have much to say about that as to why there was this rationale? Because obviously, you asked him why they didn't raise rates last year. 
but you know, looking forward, there's going to be more of these rate hikes. Was there even a discussion that this isn't the case? Yeah, definitely. So the, the it's very much. It is a supply shot. So at least inflation, I mean, the bank have got it at 7.25% peaking in April. Um, it is being driven by a supply shot. So it's not a conventional um, inflation spike, which tends to be driven by people just spending a lot of money and businesses kind of taking advantage of higher demand in the economy by raising prices. This inflation crunch is being driven by something that Bailey said is a is a trade shock. So the idea is that you can't, that there's a shortage of goods which are used by almost all firms in the economy. The main um, commodity, that being, is is oil and energy and um, mm. energy commodities. Which, if the cost of that increases, then it kind of increases the cost for everyone across the board. They in turn then have to raise prices to protect their margins, mm. which then feeds into consumer price inflation. So. You know, there is most of this inflation spike is being driven by that so-called supply shock um, mm. and businesses passing on. I mean, there is some there is some pressure in the labour market. Wait, I think the Bank of England have got wages increasing at around about four percent this mm. year. Um, but again, it just it just feeds into that wider um, inflation environment which businesses are being spiked with at the moment. Mm. One thing I think I probably have to say is that you know the market are priced in a zero point two five percent percent basis point hike. Um, before I get all the angry economists on Twitter telling me off. There's many of them. Uh, yeah, there are. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, that is a doubling of the, of the base rate, which is, you know, in theory, huge news, but from such a low bar. But it was 5-4. There were people that were pushing to go faster, nobody pushing to keep it as was. That's pretty much what the market was expecting. So, in a sense, has the Bank of England got some credibility back today, maybe? Because obviously, before Christmas in November, we were all hyped up for a rate rise, and then a rate rise come, it did not. Mm. Um, the Bank of England, to me, seems to have been slightly quieter in January about what it was going to do, which she'd prefer rather than leading us all up the hill to march us straight back down again. Mm. Um, do you think there's a slightly more, a slight change of tones, change of strategy now because of the fact that we are going to go through a, a decent cycle of rate hikes? Yeah, I think, well, it, it, it's that sort of conundrum whereby the bank has, has just delivered on expectations today. It hasn't gone beyond that. So if, if investors were thinking that, well, the bank is going to have quite a sharp hawkish tilt this year and they're doing the bare minimum of what they expect, you know, that is... Ugh, you know, you're kind of you're kind of getting credibility back amongst people who were expecting them to do what they expected to do. Mm. But if they went further, I mean, this was the rationale of the four the four dissenters on the NPC who voted for the 0.5 percentage point hike. Is that it's it's more about communication than the actual rate hike. If they increased it by double than what they did today, it would send a quite strong message to markets that listen, this coming year we are really pivoting policy towards getting on top of this inflation spike. Mm. I think kind of doing the the bare minimum of what investors expect is not gonna. It's not gonna regain all the credibility they lost at the back end of last year. Yeah, certainly true, Jack. We will leave it there for now and talk about supply chains, which are underpinning an awful lot of of what we're seeing out there on on you know supermarket shelves and on on fuel forecourts. Um, Alex Hersham is the founder of Zen Cargo. They're a firm growing like Billio, frankly, um, using machine learning and data to improve inventory and supply chain management across the world. Alex, thanks so much for uh, for coming on. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me. I think it's fair to say that over the past year at least, certainly the last year, um, the phrase supply chain has been in the headlines of both the business press and the front pages. 
um, more so than it has been probably in, in decades, to be honest. Um, so we've moved from possibly an era of complacency to understanding the complexity of supply chains and, and the importance of every little cog in that machine working properly. But when you got the idea for Zencargo, you know, what was the problem that you were trying to solve within global supply chains? So it's interesting because if you look at the past two years, there have been a lot of things that have happened that have made supply chain management much, much harder. But actually the backdrop to that is that supply chains have become a lot more complex, mm. not just because of globalization, but because of the way commerce businesses have to operate nowadays. Mm. Um, and that complexity has been building very significantly over the past, let's say, five to 10 years. Mm. And so what's happened um, over the past 18 months that we've seen in the press, whether it be ships being stuck in the middle of a canal, <laughs> or whether it be poor issues um, on the West Coast, et cetera, et cetera, those have been big one-off things that have definitely moved the market, but the backdrop is much more complexity in supply chains. And actually, to your question, that's why I started the business five years ago. I felt that commerce um, was becoming so much more complicated. Consumer expectations were so much stronger. And there was only really one business back then that I thought really understood how do you match inventory demand with inventory supply mm. across dozens of warehouses with skew proliferation, the proliferation of what you sell. And that business, unsurprisingly, was Amazon. <laughs> um, and they have great technology, but they've also got a lot of great people who spend a lot of time analyzing what's happening in the supply chain and how that matches supply and demand. Not many businesses can afford those investments. And I thought that there was a great opportunity to essentially democratize that capability. Mm. So to build a modern supply chain partner for commerce businesses who wanted to lean into what the future looks like. That's why we started it. That's the backdrop of what's been building up over the past five years. And then when you add some of these one-offs, it's been a really challenging 24 months. Yeah, for sure. Let's talk about the backdrop just there, the increasing complexity what's what sort of begot that is it is it online commerce is it just the sheer logistics of moving things not just to a warehouse and bearing in mind i'm no supply chain expert you know is it the, the change between moving stuff from a warehouse to that final mile what what is it that made the supply supply chain more complex in the past five years because stuff's been moving from one part of the world to another part of the world for a long time right yeah so i think Firstly, I'm not going to use the word e-commerce. I'm going to use the word commerce because yeah, I think that's sure. one of the reasons. Right? One of the reasons is that how you sell goods has completely changed over the past five years. And it's not e-com, it's not stores, it's not omnichannel. It's the combination of all of those. When you work that back, how companies think about where they have to locate warehouses and how much the inventory they hold at different warehouses has also changed significantly as a result. You can't have one big warehouse where you hold your stock and you don't mind if you run out of inventory. You have to have many warehouses, all with discrete inventory levels. You have to have a lot of inventory across a lot of different things that you might want to sell to best satisfy your customer, whether that be through an e-com experience, an in-store experience, um, an experience through a channel partner, whatever it might be. So that has taken us from, I buy stuff in one place, it comes to another, <laughs> I hold it there, I sell it, to I buy from many, many different places, new product development, new mm. things that you want to sell, owning more and more of that customer experience. I hold that inventory in many different places, close to you and I, but also close to people in America, close to people in France, close to people in Australia. 
and I have to be able to distribute it from anywhere. And that is really a completely different way of operating to what, you know, was sort of the nineties and two thousands way of operating. And that is much, much more complex, much harder. Mm. And that's the backdrop of what's been happening. And my understanding is, is that what you're doing in particular is, is using available data, real-time data, um, and transparency and, and almost constant visibility on those inventory levels to ensure that you you are never caught short, that you can foresee, you know, or not necessarily foresee, you know, unfortunate one-off events, but be able to react quickly to them if you need to, to ensure that, yeah, as you say, as a business, you're delivering what you're saying you're going to deliver to customers. Yeah, and anybody who's bought inventory from manufacturers around the world know that issues happen almost on a daily basis. The manufacturer was delayed. They didn't fulfill as much. The ship didn't sail on time, whatever it might be. Mm. So when you scale that up, um, to your point, it becomes very, very difficult to know what's going on unless you have complete and ongoing visibility. And unless you're able to really understand how that impacts what you can sell in three or four weeks' time. That's what commerce businesses need today. They need to be able to control their supply chain they need to understand if A happens, what does that mean for B and C, even if those things are many weeks in the future. And they need a partner that can help them navigate that in near real time. And that's where Zen Cargo comes in. Mm. And it seems to be something that people are recognizing because my understanding of it, I think it's fair to say, it is going pretty well. Talk me through the journey of the past five years, as you say, from saying, you know, we're going to offer all commerce businesses the, the sort of insights that, you know, the really big players are operating on that's the reason they can keep prices so low the reason they can deliver so quickly etc cetera, etc cetera. talk me through that journey and, and kind of persuading people that zen cargo were, were, were the people to to do to go on that journey with i've said journey a lot there but you get the premise i'm, I'm talking about supply chain so i'm thinking about journeys a lot <laughs> i like uh, i like the metaphor yeah listen it is a journey though because it's 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 not as intense as a transformation, but you are progressing something quite significantly. You have to put a lot of trust and faith in us, both because we're the part of the moves the goods, but also because can we do what we say we're going to do? Mm. Which fortunately we can, but it's, you know, it's, it's 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 something that people do need to go on a journey and build that trust when work with us. You know, when we started the business five years ago, um, we started by working in a coffee shop. We would get in at 7.30 in the morning to get that table that we liked that was free. And it's, it makes for a funny story. It probably wasn't the best way of starting a business. Um, but what we've been really lucky over the course of the journey is, firstly, our initial view of what was happening in the market has very much played out. Yeah. So this, in, this significant increase in complexity in the supply chain, driven by consumer demand changes, has completely played out. Secondly, what we've, what we've been able to do is we've been able to get people to buy into our vision, whether that be uh, team members, investors, external stakeholders, and really sharing the vision of what the world could look like in the future. And that's made our lives much, much easier because yeah. we've been able to bring people along for the journey and scale it. And the last thing that's been really interesting has been that you know, when we started the business, we thought it would just be <coughs> very new companies that wanted to work with us, people that maybe were just entering the world of supply chain management. Right. What we realized, though, is that actually there are dozens or hundreds of stakeholders who maybe have been in supply chain for a longer period of time, but actually are even more advocates of moving into this new way of doing things. Mm. So fortunately, over the years, and as we build the brand and build the technology and build the team, we've been able to capture a much larger sort of percentage of the market than we would have thought we would have five years ago. Um, and you know, as a result, we've now expanded into the Netherlands, mm. going into the US, et cetera, et cetera. But that's really been a key part of, you know, 
I think, the journey that we've been on over the past five years. Yeah, and I guess my last question is, is where next? You mentioned that expansion now into the US. Um, always a tough market for any non-US company to crack, but you seem pretty confident with the with the tech. And, and I, I guess, how are, you, how are you taking on? How's your British invasion going? So for me, Zencargo should be the company that any any forward-thinking commerce brand wants to work with. And if we're going to do that well, we have to be in the markets where commerce exists, commerce, um, commerce exists to such a high degree of complexity as mm-hmm. it does in some of these key markets that we're entering. So for us, over time, over the next five years, you'll see us in the US, you'll see us across Northern Europe, you'll see us in the Far East and in Australia, um, markets that I think we can operate in. Um, so far, listen, we're early in the US, but I would say in the Netherlands, where we have a bit more of a presence, um, the reception has been really, really good. Mm. Um, and we've been lucky that we, we already have quite a big presence there because a lot of our UK customers have quite a lot of business there. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'll come back on this podcast in a year and I'll tell you whether we were right or wrong to enter the US, but fingers crossed. Fingers crossed indeed. No, it's good to hear a success story. Alex, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for your time. And that's all from me on the City View podcast for today. We'll be back tomorrow with our tech special. I'll see you again on Monday. Thank you.